Welcome to the Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is speaking with clean energy pioneer Catherine Hamilton, founder of 38 North Solutions. Join us as they discuss her surprising career journey, using policy to scale new technologies, and driving innovation through smart policy. Let's get started on the Solar Podcast. Well, welcome to the Solar Podcast. This is Dave Anderson. I'm your host. I'm thrilled to be speaking with Catherine Hamilton today. So she is an absolute expert in clean energy and innovation policy. Uh, she's the founder and chair of 38 North Solutions, a public policy firm focused on providing business and development and strategic policy services to clean tech companies. Um, and we've, we've we've spent a lot of time talking about policy. Um, you know, obviously we're in an industry where policy is a critical component to it. And so we spend a lot of time talking about it uh, on the Solar Podcast. But I think, uh, um, you know, we're, we're, we're really fortunate to have Catherine with us, who is an absolute expert in this area. Um, but also has a lot of experience in the entrepreneurial side of things. You run your own business. Also has a lot of experience on the government side of things, working in labs. So there's a lot of different things we can talk about. But Catherine, I do have to ask you, what's your story? So all of the people that come into the story have some sort of a reason or some sort of a path that has led them into this renewable energy path. So I got to ask, what's your story, Catherine? Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm so happy to be here, Dave. Uh, this is this was not my grand plan. My grand plan was to write and illustrate children's books, and you know how that's gone, right? I've just I've been able to have a bunch of kids, and I've told them a lot of stories, but that has not been my living. It was sort of a just catch as catch can, trying to find a job, doing a job serving subpoenas for six dollars an hour, which by the way was not living wage even back in the dark ages, and um, finally landed on a job at a utility. And I had done a summer job with the utility. My grandfather was a longtime executive. He called it the company. You know, it was really very hip on getting people into the utility. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to do what my family does. But I did end up getting a job at the utility. And it was a job like nothing I was prepared to do. It was an engineering job. I had to design grids. I had to do circuit conversions. I had to design vaults with French drains and switches and transformers to serve high rises. It was a three-year program. We had to take a test every six months, um, and, but designing the whole time. There wasn't like, oh, you have to take the test and then you'll be able to do this. It was more, you know. The test is just going to confirm that you know how to do guying calculations kind of thing. So I did that, took night classes in engineering because, of course, I didn't have any engineering schooling or experience and ended up absolutely loving it, loving doing that kind of work, loving being at a utility, which at that time was very innovative. And so I was able to do things like ice storage back in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, back in the, you know, the way back days when we were just filling up rooms with ice. We were able to do some really interesting things that I had not done. And that's when I really got hooked onto not just the power sector, but how do we make it better and more innovative? So how long did you spend at the utility? I was there 10 years. So I did this engineering job for a number of years, and then I switched over to commercial marketing, which was essentially going to large commercial customers and we were each assigned, I don't know, a hundred customers. So for example, I had Marriott, they were one of my customers and I would have to cover all of the Marriott's in Northern Virginia and try to help them become more energy efficient and get them on the right rates and do energy audits and work with the building operators to make those buildings operate more 
efficiently and more cost-effectively. And so that's when I sort of started getting into this kind of building science and how do we do things for buildings that will make them better, which kind of put me on a whole nother trajectory. Yeah, I guess I would have assumed that you would have gone engineering first and then into the utilities as opposed to the utilities. And then that pushed you into, into your engineering background. But maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. So after leaving the utilities, what was your sort of next step on your career path? So I realized uh, almost a decade in that at that time, I really was not given a path to success at the utility as a woman. I just, I found a lot of barriers um, along the way and thought, you know, I, I need to do something that both gets to my urge to be innovative and do clean energy, but also gives me a path to success. Um, you know, I have some aspirations. I want to do things that are making a difference. And I knew that I really wasn't going to be able to stay there and do that. So I found a memo as I was walking by one of the legitimate, legitimate engineers' offices. I saw a memo from somebody at the Department of Energy, and I called this guy his name is Mark Ginsburg, and he was running the Federal Energy Management Program at the Department of Energy. And I said, you seem like a really interesting person, and it sounds like you're doing very cool work. Tell me more. And he brought me in and interviewed me, and he couldn't hire me at Department of Energy because it was a freeze-on. So what he did instead was he said, you're going to have to apply through the National Renewable Energy Lab and go to the lab. So the requirement at that point, at working at the lab, which is in Golden, Colorado, was to go and present a paper before 12 scientists. And as you know, I'm, I'm not an engineer, nor am I a scientist. <laughs> My background is in creative writing and French. So I thought, what can I tell these scientists that they don't already know? So I did a presentation on rate structures. I thought, you know, this is just, this is a really tiny ecosystem and subsector of the utilities that maybe they could learn about. So I, so I gave a paper on rate structures and they hired me to design and run an energy audit program for federal buildings and federal facilities. And that that was going to go across the federal sector because the federal sector at that point, and it, it's probably about the same, it was like 2% of the energy use in the U.S. was was federal buildings and federal installations. And so getting to that was a big piece during the Clinton administration of trying to to become more energy efficient as a nation. Wow. So working for NREL, I'm curious, do you remember that paper very well, what you spoke about when you were talking about rate structures? I will tell you, it was on overhead slides. So it was like all drawn onto these little tiny pieces of plastic Then you would put on these overhead machines. Pe kids today would not know what they are. And then it was projected onto the onto the screen. And at one point they all got disassembled that, you know, they would fall off, they would slide off of each other because they were so slick. And um, eventually I got through it and they asked really good questions, of course, because they're really smart people in the lab. And there were a couple of people who had were utility adjacent. So they knew some good questions to ask. And uh, it was really fun. I realized these are really smart people. They are really mission driven. And I want to work mm -hmm. with them. Yeah. Well, NREL is, a, of course, a really important um, agency as it relates to residential solar. Well, all solar. But uh, um, so how long did you spend at NREL? So I ran this audit program for a few years, three or four years, um, got it off the ground, ran a solicitation so that we found auditors that could be approved by the federal government. So I know a little bit about how the government procurement process works because I ran one of those solicitations. And then um, one of my friends at the lab 
said, hey, I do all the policy work and, you know, I bet you'd be really good at this. I'm about to leave and take a different job. Would you be interested? And I guess my motto has always been, how hard can it be? Or else I never would have done any of this stuff. So I said, okay, I don't know anything about policy. I don't even know what it is. Um, But it sounds interesting. And if I'm able to then learn more about what the lab does, so if it's cross-cutting where I'm not just doing buildings, but I'm also doing wind and solar and biofuels and all of the other technologies the lab is doing, that seems pretty cool. So I started... Uh, then I moved into public policy, and I did have to learn a lot more about how the utility worked. But somehow my brain was able to connect the dots of really technical issues, uh, technical descriptions with being able to describe those to people who are non-technical, to the policymakers, essentially. So I was able to become an expert witness uh, in Congress and be able to kind of connect the dots for members of Congress. And I did that for a number of years, too, and really loved it. I just I loved NREL. I still stay in touch with a lot of the people I worked with and I think so highly of that entire community. And in fact, the whole lab system in the U.S. is so rich and so able to innovate, but then also connect the dots from innovation to deployment. Yeah. So that was really your first foray into policy, but I would have to say that the first 10 or 20 years of, of that career between NREL and between the utilities, you certainly saw policy at work. And, um, you know, so what were sort of the first ideas or glimpses of where you started to realize that policy is something that's really important, particularly as it relates to energy? Yeah, I would say the rate, Kate, the rate structures were really important. So as the utility was trying to figure out how do we get power to all of these buildings that were being built? And I, my assignment was Old Town Alexandria. And that was the time when there were just high rises being built every single block, new buildings being constructed. And the only way we were going to be able to get them juice was to try to figure out, are there are there different rate structures that we can put them on? And at that time, we had thermal energy storage rates. We had time of use rates. We had standby generation rates to incentivize them to build more efficiently and smarter and really take advantage of these rates. And that would then prevent or at least buy some time to building new substations and new feeder lines, which we desperately needed. We had plenty of... Um, capacity with our nuclear power plants. But we once you got down to that last mile, it was really tricky. And so I realized then you have to get really creative. You have to incentivize customers to do things a little differently in order to be able to give them what they need. Yeah. So you testified at Congress. So were you mostly working on like large federal policy or did you ever work on any like the local policy as well? So at that time, when I was at NREL, it was really about research and development. So I was there to make sure that NREL and other labs were able to be funded and to be able to really work on projects and technologies that some of the folks in Congress may have been skeptical of. Although I will say at that time, the chair of the House Science Committee, who was a Republican, uh, was a scientist and was very keen on research and development. So there was not a any kind of politicization at that point of science, of renewables. Renewables were not considered a threat at that point. So there weren't people that were organizing against them. It was like, oh, this is really cute and really interesting. And I'm sure we're going to, you know, scientists are going to be working on this for a long time. So at that point, it was really about educating. And I really enjoyed that part 
Um, I also... Another project I worked on that I thought was super interesting at the lab was we had something called the Partnership for a New Generation of Vehicles. And it was the big three uh, auto companies that were developing the hybrid drivetrain. And they all had it. This was in the 90s. They all had the hybrid drivetrain. I remember specifically taking the GM engineers onto the hill. Now, the big three, those efforts were very carefully um, differentiated so that they didn't talk to each other. Even the lab people were not allowed to talk to the other lab people working on different teams. It was very much cordoned off by company. And I remember taking the GM folks on the Hill. They were engineers and talking to members of Congress and saying, this is coming. This is the hybrid electric vehicle. And at some point, the big three decided to pull back and Toyota ate through lunch. They went ahead and developed the hybrid drivetrain and they and they sold it and they got ahead. And watching that was so instructive to me because I think if the big three had kept going, well, I don't know what would have exactly happened. Maybe they wouldn't have gone back to EVs, but they would have taken a step that they hadn't taken then. Um, but it showed me then how important it was to link, to be able to link technology, innovation and public policy. When you're sort of like thinking through, I mean, you're an advocate for public policy. What's the process that you go through to try to determine, because obviously there's there's a lot of implications when we're talking about policy. What's the process that you kind of go through when you're sort of like vetting not just new technologies for business, but then new policies that would also support and drive business? And that's the purpose of policy, right, is to drive and to provide the right incentives for people to make good decisions. So what's the process that you go through and as a consultant that you help people kind of navigate through when you're when you're sort of wading through and thinking about policy? Right. So one of the things that I found at the utility is that at that point, the utility had all the ideas. There was not innovation outside of the utility that was threatening the utility. And over time, there's been a lot more democratization of innovation an innovation that would impact the power system. And that's all to the good that people are designing new things that the utilities may use. But what I also realized, and this was in part when I was running the Gridwise Alliance, that just because you design an incredible piece of equipment, an incredibly new new technology and innovation that should be a game changer does not mean anybody's going to buy it. And there are so many innovators out there. They come up with an idea. It's a brilliant idea, no doubt. It'll be, it will change the world. And they just assume because it is that it's just going to get out into the world and everybody's going to buy it. And that's just not what happens. So what I try to do is figure out, I have to really understand the technology. And because I love learning about technology, that's a, that's a fun place for me. I want to dig in. I want to see the decks. I want to understand if I can, I want to go to the power plant. I want to go to the factory. I want to see how this thing is built and how it works and then understand what's your market. Who are your competitors? Who are you trying to sell to? Do you have anybody who wants to buy it? And that's their business model. What is your business model? And if you can't tell what your business model is, I don't know if there's any policy that's going to help you, right? Because it's got the policy has to be in service to the business model. That's slightly different if you're an NGO and you're trying to do something based on a mission. You know, that's a mission is different than business. So that's just, that's a slightly different thought process. And that's about how do you get to the outcomes that your mission needs. But for any kind of innovation, you need to figure out what's the business model and what's the market. And then where are the barriers? Like, what are the things that you're going to bump into? What are the friction points that you will find? 
And are they policy related? Some of them are going to be funding related. Some of it's going to be, oh, I can't get enough equity. Well, maybe that means we need to go for a government grant. You know, maybe there's something there. And that's still sort of a a connection to the public sector, which is you know, much more policy leaning. But that's how I like to do it is make sure that it is in service to something bigger, that it's whether it's the business or the mission, that it's not just policy for policy's sake. I know there are a lot of folks out there, kind of traditional lobby shops, and their job is to just take clients to visit all the people on the Hill that they can possibly visit, all the members of Congress and all the staff. And that's that's great. That's great for exposure. But that's not about that's not public policy. <laughs> public policy is all right, what are the things that we can do, whether it's fixing something that's already there, tweaking it, or is it creating something wholly new? Is it trying to change the way people think about something? When I when I think about policymakers, I think one of their biggest faults is their or one of the biggest barriers with policymakers is their lack of imagination, and it's not their fault. They just don't know what they don't know, and they don't know that some technologies exist or don't exist. So sometimes giving them that vision, telling them the story, and then laying out, and here's how, if you're sparked by this, here is what we need to make this thing a reality. I'd love to get your take on just over your your, your past and your history of working on policy an example where you think policymakers got it absolutely right, and then another example maybe where you think policymakers got it wrong. And I'd be just as curious to find out why do you think that they got it wrong? Why do you think that you know good and smart and bright people all got into a room and decided that that was what the right thing, the right policy was, and 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 how it uh, and why you don't think it worked out? So I'll give you an example of something that we finally got over the finish line, and that was the energy storage tax credit. I worked on it since Senator Wyden introduced it in 2009, and it finally got over the finish line with the Inflation Reduction Act. It took so long to do it. In fact, when we were first starting to work on it, energy storage was it was like a science club, the people who were working on energy storage. It was like a bunch of guys at labs and in their basements, and they were like, we know this is going to work. I don't know how long it'll take, but it's going to work. And so that's what we were dealing with on the education front. And over time, it became so obvious that this is something that the tax credit's going to be really meaningful for. And and then people came up with workarounds, like, oh, we'll build solar and storage so we can get the credit somehow. But it finally got over the finish line. And to me, that speaks to how patient you have to be, how long you have to work on it, how you have to collect champions over the years, educate people, um, tweak it as you go to make sure it's going to do what it's supposed to do. And then there are other things that just don't make it over over the finish line. And I would say an example of something that did not get into the Inflation Reduction Act was uh, a transmission tax credit. And I thought that was something that was a real missed opportunity. Because transmission, as everybody knows, it costs a lot to build. It has siting issues. It has permitting issues. But those aren't the only issues it has. It's also very capital intensive. And it was pulled out at the last minute. I thought that was not a great decision. I'm not saying that it won't ever happen in the future. I I could definitely see an Inflation Reduction Act 2.0 coming down the pike at some point. But That to me was a missed opportunity because it's so foundational to all of the other resources being able to be developed, which did get tax credits. If you take away the ability to drive down the cost of transmission, which is so crucial, 
to me, that is a huge miss. Yeah, particularly the case of like California, where about 50% of your electricity bill in all markets, but in California, where 50% of the cost of electricity is the transmission cost. And that cost is about double the cost of the average cost per kilowatt hour for electricity in most other states. So I I'm recording this from Salt Lake where residential rates are 10 to 15 cents. And in California, the transmission costs are anywhere from 20 to 25 cents uh, just for the transmission cost per kilowatt hour. So I, I absolutely agree. There has to be some innovation. And, you know, to, to I have to come to California's defense a little bit in the sense that, you know, when you got 40 million residents or whatever the number is right now, um, certainly the people that were building the grid in 1950 didn't anticipate it well. And so all of the retrofits and, and the things that they're having to do to try to provide power to that very, very large state uh, is difficult. But, uh, you know, you want people to have the right incentives in place such that we can keep the cost of energy affordable for the layperson. Yeah, and I think that when we built the grid, of course, it was all linear, right? So you go from point A, I, I drew a picture of how the grid was built on a napkin at one point for one of my assistants because he said, I don't understand the grid. And I said, well, here, let me draw it on the napkin for you. And it was that that easy to, oh, he took it with him when he got his next job. <laughs> I don't know where it ended up. Um, he may have used it when he had COVID or something. But um, one one thing that's changed is that we have so many more technologies so that it doesn't have to be as linear. So that there are, there are technologies on the transmission side that will give us uh, a, a better ability to get more out of the lines, to have more visibility, to be able to figure out what's the loading on any line. And then there are all these technologies on the demand side that are enabling much more flexible use on the demand side. So it is much more of um, a give and take now. And what's I'm a, my vision is, of course, in the long run, that the supply and demand sides will be completely fungible. It won't matter where it's coming from as long as you get what you need when you need it at the cost you need it. Um, but, of course, we were designed as a very linear one-way system. Yeah, and linear – a little to dive into that, I think you're you're referring specifically to like a large power generation station and then an end user essentially with not a lot of other, uh, you know, endpoints. Uh, well, m maybe lots of endpoints, but um, a single transmission station and then the end users. But obviously, every person that goes solar becomes part of that larger macro grid now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was kind of the first thing was for solar to be able to allow people to participate in a way that they'd never done before. Yeah, that's right. So I'm curious, who are some mentors that you've had or people that you've really looked up to or respected that have really helped you as you've sort of navigated your own career path? So I had mentioned Mark Ginsburg at the Federal Energy Management Program. He was one of those people I really looked up to. Um, some of the folks at the lab, I also really turned to. Um, it was tough as a woman uh, navigating the space. I had to look for women and had to also work to not be part of an ecosystem that said that if there's one woman that we've already met our quota, you know, that, that you want to have a lot of women. You want to have a lot of different kinds of people in every business you're in. It just makes it a better, richer, you get better outcomes. And so when, you know, when you're in a place where, oh, we already have a woman there, so we don't need any more. Now, this was quite some time ago. But we're still catching up from that. I mean, systemically, we need to get more women throughout organizations from entry-level engineers all the way up into senior exec positions and then on boards. Um, but I would just say, looking at all the folks I've worked with, I, I have a 
a managing partner who works with me at my company. He's served as a mentor. He's amazing at what he does. And I love kind of bouncing ideas off of him. Um, my husband has been a huge mentor. He was doing public policy long before I was. And so I looked to him as to, what is policy? I don't even know what it is. Um, there was another guy that I sat with and sat with in the House of Representatives. He was a staffer for a member of Congress from Colorado. He was just great. And he said, just sit with me and we're going to watch C-SPAN. And we're going to watch the floor and I will tell you everything that's happening. And that's how I learned what they were doing, how to look at body language, how to understand the de- how the decisions were made um, in real time with members of Congress. And so having people along the way like that, that you can trust and bounce ideas off of and um, learn from is so important. You know, I would imagine as much time as you spend in policy, you get really excited about potential and future um, emerging markets and opportunities and technologies. What are some of those technologies? And, and I got to say that you're, you're really one of those rare people that you've spent the time at the utilities. You've spent time uh, certainly at like a, a grant funded organization like NREL. Um, obviously, you spent time both as an engineer as well as a marketer. And now you're uh, a consultant to many different companies as you help people navigate policy. So you're really one of those rare people that has the unique experiences to sort of like really weigh in on these things. But, uh, you know, what are some uh, technologies that you're particularly excited about that you think are either coming around the corner or that you're starting to finally see, um, you know, come to prominence in a way that they always should have, I should say? Yeah, so there are a few things. One is something that I've been working on for a really long time, which is distributed energy resources. I've been doing this for at least a decade, closing on two decades, to really allow customers to have a big impact and and have choices and be able to be part of the solution. And you mentioned solar, but there's so many other ways customers can have impact, whether it's through EVs, any kind of electrification technologies, heat pumps, um, storage, really getting customers engaged. That's been something I've been working on for a long time. And it's it's something that the utilities have not been amenable to. So I think that we've made progress and that we're going to continue to do so. You hear a lot about virtual power plants. Well, I think that's kind of the next phase. It's not right now, but it's it's going to happen more and more. And I think it will become more and more accepted. I'm really excited about that. But I'm also excited about some things that we haven't been able to solve for. A lot of those are industrial decarbonization, those technologies, using how do we how do we prevent carbon in the first place from being released? How do we reuse um, and recycle uh, what we've already got out there, what we've already mined for that then we can put back into the economy and make it much more circular? So I think there's some really exciting developments there. There, I've been a vegetarian for uh, 25, 30 years, and I, I'm always interested in food security and making sure that we have technologies that are providing alternatives. I, I've seen, we've seen those come along quite a bit too, alternatives to meat, but also alternatives to products that are made of animals, that are made of petroleum, that are made of things that we need to then mine because of, uh, because of carbon emissions. So I'm really excited about a lot of those innovations. I'm excited about some of the heavy-duty vehicle uh, technologies that, you know, we've got EVs. That's great. Now, what's the next step? Is it shipping? Is it um, aviation? Is it is it trail? You know, what are all of those different heavy-duty 
uh, transport, transportation is such a huge part of our missions. How do we, you know, how do we harness those technologies and not just how do we harness them, but how do we create policy that incentivizes them and allows them to scale? And I think we'll get there, but those are, to me, exciting prospects. And I think we can't relent in not just doing the public policy, but also investing in the research and, and development. Yeah, speaking about, the, we, we've alluded to it a few times, but certainly we have to spend a little more time talking about it, which is the Inflation Reduction Act. And obviously, that's the biggest piece of policy that's ever existed as it relates to renewable energy. Um, and there's a lot of proponents and opponents of many of the different features and components of the Inflation Reduction Act. We recently had a guest come on the show, a guy that I respect a lot, a professor from Stanford, Mark Jacobson, and he talked a lot about, he, he talks a lot about um, solar, wind, and water being sort of like the only thing that you need. And then he was he was actually a little bit critical, I would say, of the provisions, and it was about 40% of the IRA, or of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, that actually um, support what he thinks are net negative technologies like carbon capture, for example. Um, and so I, I'm curious, when you're looking at a piece of legislature or policy as big as the Inflation Reduction Act, how do you sort of reconcile? Because I would imagine there's parts of it. You already talked about some features or components that didn't make it in that you would like to have seen it made in. But certainly there's got to be some things as intimately as involved as you were and as well as you understand the policy that you wish wouldn't have made it in as well. And and how do you sort of reconcile yourself to those things? Or, um, you know, was it, and I might even ask, was the Inflation Reduction Act, is it too big of a policy? Is there too many things involved? Should we have done it with smaller uh, smaller steps in specific areas? Oh, gosh, no. We should not have done it in smaller steps. We needed it to be big. The issue with any kind of legislation like this, and, and to be fair, I didn't work on every single piece of it. I worked on certain pieces of it. I already told you I worked on storage because, you know, that's like crawling through broken glass, which I really enjoy to do. And then you know, I worked uh, on microgrids. I, I I did a lot on the equity side, so worked a lot on the low income bonus credits. Worked on like the greenhouse gas reduction fund that's at EPA now to try to, you know, put some to, some financing tools in the hands of you know government and government adjacent entities to to be able to leverage and finance projects that would normally not get financed and that the LPO can't do. So there were a lot of things, a lot of moving parts. I would just say no it's not it's not too big at all. It's just really hard to put together something that acknowledges a system of systems that's really complicated. Um without having some you know when you're done going oh geez that was a weird thing that we did. And some of it is because you got too specific about things like oh we got way too specific about hydrogen but we didn't get specific enough about other things. You know, there, there's some, there's just some pieces that are just not perfect, and that is, that's okay. That's kind of the way we work on policy in the U.S. It's interesting we're so different from Europe, e, the EU. They, they uh, talk and talk and talk and model and model and model before they ever put the policy in place, and so that, so that it takes a longer time. But when the policy is there, it's exactly what they want, and we're kind of do the other way. It's like let's get it out there, and then we'll figure out how to solve for it later. That's fine. Let's figure out how to solve for it now. Um, I think there's some things like I'm less bullish on hydrogen because there's some, and I'm not, not saying green hydrogen, but on some of the other uses because I'm like, oh, wait, is this just a way for the gas guys to try to get, use more gas? You know, I would like for us to try to say, like, how do we stop using the bad stuff? And, you know, of course we have to on some level and let's like try to mitigate for that. But then let's like 
Let's go for the good stuff. Let's use that. I think the bill does enough of that to incentivize that. Um, and that's in in conjunction with the infrastructure bill, which provides a ton of funding for new technologies and the CHIPS Act, too. So there are all these pieces of legislation that passed you know, cl- within a few months of each other that are real game changers and will really push um, kind of the the demonstration to catalyzation. So you're going to get you're going to get your first but then maybe you'll get your next 20 and your next 40 by doing that first. And I I love that. I love that it's very aspirational and that it gives us space to do that because it's really hard to scale and the more you can do to help scale the better. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act does that in spades. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I will admit I'm sympathetic in the sense that while I work in, this, in the solar industry and while I'm a huge proponent for renewable energies, I also understand that this does affect different people's lives differently. And when you're talking about a huge bill or a huge piece of legislature like that, each of those individual lawmakers and policymakers have their own constituents. And it's fairly well documented on this, on particularly on this podcast. I grew up in a coal mining town, you know, in eastern Montana. And so obviously the people that are affected negatively oftentimes by these policies are people that I love and know and are, are the people that I grew up with and raised me. And 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 so, you know, I, I understand that there's a personal component to this. And these policymakers do still have their constituency that put them in 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 office to be representatives for them. And and I think that that's why um, Mark Jacobson, again, just quoting from him one more time, you know, we, when we got to talking about it, we, we sort of look at things through the lens of math. It's just math. Like we can solve this uh, renewable energy problem. We can do this. But there is this overlayment of, hey, we're, we're affecting people's lives as well. And that has to and, – and, and don't get me wrong. I think these policy changes affect the general people's lives absolutely for the for the best. But, you know, there obviously can be with policy winners and losers. And how, how do you sort of think about that? I spent a ton of time thinking about that because I'm from Virginia. I'm from central Virginia. I have a lot of family in Appalachia, a lot of family in West Virginia and southwestern Virginia. OK, I think about this all the time. I wrote a piece in the World Economic Forum about how do you bring everybody along because no one... If you can't see yourself in the future, you don't want that future, right? You have to be able to see yourself as part of the solution in order to embrace it. You don't want somebody to come to you and say, well, your industry's dead, so get on a bus and move, go find another job. No, because your community was built around this resource. You're, you know, you you can aff- you afforded a house back in the day. It wouldn't be worth anything now if you tried to sell it and move and you wouldn't be able to afford another one. Like, all of this, and, and I think um, Marianne Hitt, who was with the Sierra Club for a long time, said, you know, the industrial age was built on the back backs of coal miners. And we just have to recognize that and say, all right, then on whose backs are we building this next transition? And let's like make sure we're all in it and that we can find ways to bring everybody together. So one of the companies I've I've um, have a really strong relationship with and am bullish on is Solar Holler in West Virginia. They've basically proven out that you can do solar in West Virginia, that you can hire uh, union labor to do it because you need to be able to retain your workforce. And IBEW provides good wages, so you know they're building solar in West Virginia, proving out that it doesn't have to change the way people live, that you're able to save money where you are, that you're able to create new jobs there. But there may be other things. You can't necessarily say to every coal worker, uh, whether it was a miner or a power plant worker, like now you're going to be a solar guy. 
I mean, that may not work, right? But maybe you could do ag tech. Maybe you could do some other things that would be really interesting and help you be part of, and we need all these people too, to be part of the energy transition. So I'm really concerned about that and think about that all the time. And I think that actually the Inflation Reduction Act does a really good job of that because it does have a lot of benefits and bonuses for people in energy communities. And those are communities that have been kind of left behind until now. And they're going to get more benefits in the Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think once those projects, and they're already plants being built in coal country, in, you know, in the footprint of old steel plants that have long been shut down and shuttered and the workforce living on the government all this time. Well, if you can revive some of those communities, I think you'll see a lot more people caring, a lot more people buying into it because they're part of it. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And uh, you're also absolutely right. It's pretty difficult to take a community like the community I grew up in, Coal Street, Montana. I mean, it's named after coal mining. Right, right. And, and then all of a sudden transition people to renewable energy. I mean, it's a, it's a six gigawatt power plant um, in my hometown and, and three different coal mines. And, and I would say, you know, well, not I would say, they are the principal employer for everyone in that surrounding area. I mean, it's the reason that the, the, I mean, other than there's some cattle ranching, it's the reason that the region exists is as a coal mining. And so it can be difficult. So I love what you're talking about. How do we figure out how to bring more people along and, and it can't, you know, we want to avoid Mm -hmm. this idea or this concept of winners and losers. The truth is, is that this energy transition is a win for everybody, but we just have to make sure how do you, how do you bring people along? I think is the point there. Yeah. And, and let them be a part of imagining that future, right? If you're, you know, maybe people are sick and tired of getting coal dust in their lungs. Maybe people, maybe they want to do something different and maybe they want to repurpose their skills and tools to doing geothermal or some other energy form or, you know, carbon capture and utilization where you're, you're doing something different with the tools that you already have so that you're building on the skills that you've built all over these years. But in a way that's going to help support you during the transition. That's right. So I, I would say that the majority of the people that listen to this are probably coming to renewables more from an entrepreneurial perspective. And so I'd love to get sort of your take on how entrepreneurs can navigate this really, really heavily regulated and policy laden industry and, and how they should sort of like new new entrepreneurs should think about it. And I'll maybe caveat that by saying that I've spoken with lots of investors over the years. And one of the reasons that lots of investors exist in this renewable energy space is because of all the policy and because of all the sort of federal tailwinds. But in almost every pitch, one thing that'll come up all too often is, is what sort of regulatory risk do you have to the business? You know, so a lot of businesses, if you're a retail store, you don't have a lot of regulatory risk per se, although the the wages in California have been going crazy up and down because, well, mostly up. And so there's some regulatory risk in California. But generally speaking, uh, it's not thought of as an industry with lots of regulatory risk, whereas renewable energy, certainly there's a lot of regulatory risk for investors if they're thinking about, you know, the government makes a policy change, that can change the winners and losers potentially uh, from a business perspective. So what, what advice do you have for young entrepreneurs navigating this or even investors? Yeah, so a couple of things. First, the Inflation Reduction Act has a 10-year horizon, so they should feel better about that. <laughs> they should feel better about that. The other thing is, I kind of said this before, which is don't do policy for policy's sake. Be strategic. Think about what you need. What are you going to need 
Maybe you do need to hire somebody like me to help you think through it. But maybe you just need to think about what's my business model and where are the friction points? And are there other people who are who care about this? Because, you know, I always say the fewest number, you want to have to push on the fewest number of levers to get the result that you want. So what are the fewest number of levers? Is is it joining a trade association that's working on this and cares about this and can help carry that water for you so that you don't have to do it all yourself? I mean, do you have, are you in a market that's competitive? Because joining forces with your competitors can be really helpful if you're trying to get a policy put into place or a policy changed. And trying to go it alone is really difficult. There are some companies that do that and try to make a difference. It just takes a lot longer, requires a lot more energy, requires a lot more investment on their part to try to change it. Um, I also think that I'm not, I'm an entrepreneur from a business standpoint, but watching companies constantly pivot constantly change what they're doing and constantly saying, oh, you need that solved, I can solve that too. Or you need this solved, I can solve that too. Like stick to what's really, what you do really well and figure out how to make that successful. If it is something that is smart, that everybody should have and everybody should want to have, let's figure out how to make people buy it. (laughs) You know, like let's figure that out instead of constantly changing and you know, there, there are times when you need to pivot, but there are other times when a pivot just, just um, it might get you a couple of new investors because they think that's an exciting thing to do, but it doesn't always pan out. It, it could just mean you, you haven't figured out your business model yet. And so I like to really dig in with people and say, all right, let's figure out what you're trying to get done before we even consider policy. Because you're right, it is a risk. And I think um, the issue, the good news is that there are a lot of other folks out there who are going to be facing the same risk and being able to work with them uh, could be really helpful. So I think you've shared a lot of the things that you would do for someone and and you've also alluded to maybe someone should hire you. And and that's probably true. There are a lot of people (laughs) that should hire you. But talking about 38 North Solutions, maybe you can kind of just dive into a little bit. What precisely do you guys do and who's kind of an ideal client for the business? Oh, we love all of our clients. There's no ideal, <laughs> except they have to be clean energy or climate. They they can't be fossil fuel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we don't we don't take on coal companies. I mean, we do work with companies. So folks that are doing like methane mitigation, so things that are climate, uh, you know, that are still helping on climate. But we're very mission based in that in that regard. This is interesting because we started over 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, because we spun out of what would be called a traditional lobby shop because we just we just weren't like the other lobby shop. It was a completely happy um, spinoff. And it was because we're not political. We don't, I mean, we have to be politically savvy. You have to know what language to, to speak in when you go and speak to a policymaker. But we're just not political. We don't do, we don't operate on fundraiser to fundraiser. It's just not what we do. We're policy people, which means we're trying to solve problems for clients. So we love clients who are willing to partner with us, who want to take us as peers and say, all right, let us be part of your team. Let us like dig in and figure out what what can we work on together to get to give you the best benefit out of any kind of policy that we work on. Um, so we really like clients like that. We like clients who think of us um, more as an adjunct r- rather than just of, as a hired gun, because we don't see ourselves as hired guns at all. That's just not kind of what we do. We're we're much more about understanding the technology and the business side and figuring out 
what's the smartest policy solution? Yeah, well, we, we like to be fairly positive on the show and we like to be fairly forward thinking. So I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind. So if you were to sort of like look forward for the next five or 10 years, what are the things that you're most excited about, the things that you really see progressing and, and that you're really bullish on right now? Yeah, so I think industrial decarb is going to be huge. I think we're going to see a lot more transportation technologies take off. I'm very hopeful that a lot of the critical materials issues that we have now will start being um, mitigated through recycling. And that takes a little while because you need the feedstock. And we're just getting some of the feedstock now. So um, I think I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about customers being able to do more with with the appliances and systems that they have in their own house. I'm excited about induction cooking. Let me tell you, once you get it, you never go back. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, I just, I think it's, it, it's going to be an exciting decade uh, going forward. I'm excited about all the new EVs that are going to come out because I've been, I've been leasing one that I think is kind of a beta version. And uh, I'm hoping that the, the next uh, set will be even better. I mean, of course, also once you get an EV, it's hard to drive anything else. I too. was going to say the same so thing. Good. I mean, induction cooking isn't what I would have gone to as my default like transition. But once you've done and uh, driven an electric, pe- uh, electric vehicle, it's hard to go back to combustion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just getting out of the out of the stoplight is uh, is 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 worthy to be able to uh, get that get it going. But yeah, I'm really excited about the next decade and and as I sort of ease up over time with the blocking and tackling, which is there's a lot of blocking and tackling. You know, I'm looking forward to being much more in a position of being able to provide real strategic counsel. I'm, I sit on a number of boards and really love that, like taking the the look as you've kind of done in this conversation of like, how do you really look at things strategically rather than having to get super in the weeds to to solve an issue? Yeah. So maybe, uh, again, in that same vein of kind of trying to predict the future a little bit here, but also another question uh, embedded in it, which is what's a piece of policy you just haven't been able to get done yet? And you, are, you mentioned the, the transmission tax credit, but what's something else out there that you're just working on? You haven't seen it come to fruition yet, but you just feel like it's a, it's a necessary policy change that we need to have. So there was another thing that ended up on the cutting room floor, which was the clean energy standard. And that was going to set goals, as a lot of states have done with renewable portfolio standards, clean energy standards. A lot of states have 100 percent goals. That would have been really good for the U.S. to have that. And I would love to still see that happen. A lot of people talk about a price on carbon. I have a harder time seeing that done. But anything that incentivizes doing the right thing. And and I think the Inflation Reduction Act, for the most part, is carrots. That's really what it's about, is carrots rather than sticks. Of course, you have to have regulation. You have to have somebody as the backstop to health and health and safety for humankind. But I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that we will get to something that really does set goals for the nation that everybody can get around. And one of my one of the things that I'm most frustrated about is the politi- is is that climate change and the the resolution of this crisis has become political. I just I don't think it's right. There's no one else in the world for which this is political except the U.S. It's unnecessary. I feel like it's something we should all be able to get around, but we're so polarized um, based on our two party system that it's it's hard 
to me, that is the hardest, most frustrating thing to have to deal with is that there's some words that I can't use to people that I think are very smart and they want to do the right thing, but I can't say climate crisis to them. And, and that's a shame because I think this is something we have to work on. Everybody has to work on as a planet, no matter who you are. Everybody wants a health and safe environment for their kids and their kids' kids. And uh, that's the thing I would love to be able to change if I had a magic wand. Yeah. And you're absolutely right about the two-party system. I mean, even as I've been watching, you know, some of the uh, Republican debates, there's, you know, there's, there's, uh, I, I find myself as one of those people that I can listen to somebody and feel like I can learn something from almost anybody. And as I listen to a lot of those debates, there's a lot of things that people say up on that stage that, that really resonates with me and I really like. And then there's, you know, there's been some people that have been really doubling down on this idea of, you know, climate crisis uh, denial, I guess I should say. And so um, it, it's been an interesting thing to see. And so, um, and, and you're right, it, it would be great if uh, people, you know, could, um, you know, not politicize that piece of it. Uh, that would be a wonderful thing. I, I couldn't agree with you more. So I got to ask one last question. Is there an example that you can think of where you think policy got it wrong, where industry was doing well and policy stepped in and, and interrupted what was already, you know, something that was uh, going well? I can't think of anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no can be the answer, by the way. And so I think, you know, you're a person that has has taken a really principled position um, as it relates to policy changes and, and the policies that you champion. And I think that for the most part, I think you really trust in that system, which I think is great um, and, and really understand it's really important to to, to promote business and entrepreneurialism and labs and getting things from lab to market. I think that that's the place and the role that you've played uh, and, and filled so strong. And Catherine, it's been an absolute fantastic conversation with you. Again, just maybe some parting thoughts from you. What are, what are the, what's your sort of outlook for the business and for yourself for the next handful of years? Yeah, it's really positive. Although just know, and I think you've picked this up in our in our chat here today, is I'm an optimist. So I'm never going to say, oh, it's just going to be rough. I'm just never going to say that. It's I'm always optimistic because there are always smart people out there with really good ideas and, and they're always going to need help. They're going to need somebody to help them navigate. And so I feel like uh, for folks who are working on policy, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Everybody's going to need policy assistance along the way because there are always going to be entrepreneurs and people thinking of really great ideas that are going to need help getting to fruition. And I and I think there's just always going to be a business for that. Yeah. Well, again, Catherine, it's been absolutely fantastic to pick up this conversation with you. I think the world needs more people like you that really understand both the business side of it and and, and can can think about policy in a, in a really sort of clever way to really sort of think about, you know, it's not really about just passing a bunch of laws. It's really trying to figure out what are the technologies that really are going to help all people, um, you know, and, and, and promote, um, I think, good decisions. And I think that's really what we want from our policymakers is people that are going to put the right incentives in place for people to have and make good decisions. And uh, and, and and I think, uh, Catherine, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're spending as much time as you're doing working on this problem. And it's been fantastic to visit with you today. <laughs> 